You are listening to the Sunday Sermon from Crossroads Bible Church in Bellevue, Washington. To learn more about Crossroads, visit us on our website at cbcbellevue.com. In 1952, one of the most impactful books in the last 100 years was published. Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. One of the most compelling cases for Christianity. This book is called an apologetical tool. Apologetics is the defense of Christianity. We just finished this weekend an apologetics conference called Stand to Reason. That's the organization that brought it in so that we could impact the next generation. Apologetics is incredibly important. Even in our 21st century world where it's said that truth is relative and pluralism reigns supreme, apologetics is critical. But in addition to logic, we need lifestyle. At no time in our nation's history has lifestyle perhaps been more important for Christians. I want you to stop and think for just a moment about the teaching in the New Testament. In John chapter 13, Jesus himself said, All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love was the great apologetic of Jesus' day and of our day. Later in John chapter 17, Jesus' last words before he's betrayed, he says, I want my disciples to be one, just like the Father and I are one. He wanted the body of Christ to be unified. That was a way that we could express our Christian lifestyle. But then we move into the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, we begin with love. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Nine fruit, singular. So if we've had trouble trying to discern what love is, the fruit of the Spirit demonstrate what love is. Here's the question. We understand the need for mere Christianity, the apologetic, but do we understand the need for mirror Christianity. In other words, when I look into this handheld mirror, what do I see? Do I see the fruit of the Spirit exhibited in my life? Do I see love for the body of Christ exhibited in my life and ministry? When I look into this mirror, do I see a passion to unify with the body of Christ, to be one as Jesus and his Father are one? What about our church family? When I take this mirror, sorry about any reflection, and I put this on us, are we a church that loves one another? Are we a church that unifies with one another? This is mirror Christianity. We need mirror Christianity, the logic. We need mirror Christianity, the lifestyle. How are we doing? How are we doing when it comes to exuding love, unity, and the fruit of the Spirit. How are you doing personally? Those are the questions we're going to consider today. And 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17, is going to answer those questions. So turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. 
Now, this is not going to be one of my more popular sermons. I'm going to tell you that straight out of the gate. Because I'm going to be talking about some commands. Two short, pithy commands that Peter gives for believers like you and me. And what we're going to find is, Peter is going to challenge us. There will be things that I say that Peter has expressed that are going to rub you the wrong way. There are going to be some things that are going to offend you. But here's the thing. Scripture is an equal opportunity offender. The Word of God, Hebrews 4 says, it's living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It's able to cut, slice, and dice us up, spiritually speaking. And as a Bible church, we ought to be saying, bring it. Bring it on. I love that. Here's the truth. Think of it this way. I always say that other churches throughout our country really struggle with worship through singing. People always seem to be unhappy, at least some of the time. Now, some people during some worship sets are really unhappy. They don't like the worship through singing at all. Some of you are going to feel like that today. You might be a little disgruntled, or you might be full-on irritated with me. Just remember, I'm the mailman. I'm delivering the mail. Peter's the one that said these things, and I am not going to shy away from what he said. I'm going to lay it out, and we're going to have to grapple with it as a church family, because this is the word that the Lord has for us today. So may we receive it with hearts that are going to welcome the word, receive the word, and then may we be doers of the word, not merely hearers. 1 Peter chapter 2. Verses 11 and 12 give the first concise command. Live exemplary lives. Peter is going to say, it is critical that your lifestyle demonstrate that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. In verses 11 and 12, we have two of the most important verses in the entire letter. In fact, I believe these verses to be the thesis of the letter. So they will help us to understand not only what has come before us, chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 10, but what will follow in the rest of the letter, all the way through chapter 5. Now, these two commands are interesting because what Peter does is he begins by giving us a negative command. So at verse 11, you could put a minus sign, a subtraction sign. And then in verse 12, he's going to give a positive command. So you could put a little plus sign right at verse 12. Now notice this as well. He starts with the inward. He gives us a command that's focused inward. And then in verse 12, he gives us one that's focused outward. I love that. Inward and then outward. The first command is abstain. The second command is maintain. So the negative, abstain. The positive, maintain. All in these two verses. You've got to love it. We could preach an entire sermon on these two verses, but instead, we're going to go places that angels fear to tread. Verses 11 and 12, beginning with verse 11. First word, beloved. We'll stop there. 
This is a word that Peter uses to break up his letter. So in chapter 2, verse 11, he uses this term, and it's going to break up the letter all the way to chapter 4, verse 11. And then in chapter 4, verse 12, guess what Peter says? Beloved. The third section of the letter follows. So what we have is Peter transitioning from talking primarily to believers about relationships that believers have with one another to talking about the relationships that believers, like many of us, have with unbelievers, pre-Christians outside of our local church, or perhaps within our local church. Many times we hear beloved and we think, that's archaic. I mean, that's old school. What does that even mean? Let's make it simple. Loved by God. That's what it means. It means that God the Father chose us to enter into a relationship with Him. He poured out His love upon us, His unconditional and eternal love. And before He asks us to do anything, He tells us who we are. So obedience emanates from our identity, who we are in Christ. Beloved, chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you, now, don't think, request, suggestion. This is a word that means in this context, I strongly urge you. I appeal to you. I exhort you. What are you about, Peter? I urge you strongly as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. So Peter goes back to our identity, doesn't he? He talks about aliens and strangers. Not any type of extra extraterrestrial beings, but aliens in the sense, this world is not our home. We're sojourners. We're exiles. We're making our way through this life. Aliens and strangers. This was used of Abraham, the forefather of our faith. This was used by the psalmist of just how temporal and fragile life is. We're aliens and strangers. In the Latin translation of the New Testament, the term is made up of two words for strangers. Spend a day. I love that. This life is but a day. For some of you, it may be a glorious day. For others of you, it may be a day that has had all kinds of challenges. Trials, tragedies, wounds, grievances. But in light of eternity, it's a day. Why? Those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we are citizens of heaven. We are aliens and strangers who are just passing through. And knowing our identity, beloved, and aliens and strangers ought to help us with this command. We're told to abstain. Hold off, hold back, from succumbing to fleshly lusts or desires. Now, whenever we hear that term, our minds immediately go to sexual immorality. Now, I'm not saying that that isn't an aspect of this word. But in the context, if you go back to chapter 2, verse 1, we are to put off sins in our lives. Remember? Like dirty laundry. <laughs> We're to take off these clothes, strip the sins from us. Well, what are the sins? Chapter 2, verse 1, 
malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. I didn't hear anything about sexual immorality. Isn't that fascinating? Often the church is known for what she is against, not what she is for. And we tend to major on the minors. The sins that are truly destroying our church are listed in chapter 2, verse 1, particularly during COVID. Any sin that you're dealing with right now, Peter would say abstain. Time is short, hell is hot. Get that sin out of your life. We do not have time to play around, is what Peter is saying. He's challenging us. He's trying to convict us. Notice what else he says. He says that sin wages war against your soul. Now, soul speaks of your person. This is a military metaphor. The Christian life is not a playground. It's a battleground. We've got the world, the flesh, and the devil. Three enemies that are trying to take us out. They're trying to destroy us. But Christians make a tragic mistake. They tend to blame a whole lot on Satan and the world outside the church. Now that's embarrassing when we are the ones committing the sin. See, I am my own worst enemy. And you are your own worst enemy. Before we blame Satan and people who are unbelievers, why don't we blame ourselves? Why don't we take the mirror? Ew. I don't like looking into that mirror. And I'm not speaking just physically. I'm speaking spiritually. Sometimes I don't like how I exemplify Christ. Sometimes I don't like how I wage war with sin. We're in a battle. The only way that the world is going to see a difference in the church is if we wage war, if we battle the flesh. Peter hammers away at that. Now, we move from the negative to the positive. We move from abstaining to maintaining. He commands us to keep. While this isn't an actual command, it's linked back to the verb abstain, and it actually carries greater force. So keep your behavior excellent or praiseworthy among the Gentiles. Now, this can be a little confusing. Gentiles is just a term for people who are not Jewish, which is most of us here at CBC right now. One translation, the Net Bible translates this, non-Christians. I often refer to pre-Christians because I want to be optimistic. Or unbelievers. But this is the word for nations. We're a holy nation. We're a royal priesthood. We looked at that in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. We are to keep our lives exemplary. We're to keep our lives praiseworthy before an onlooking world. Because the world is taking the mirror and they're holding it up to our face. They're quoting the most well-known verse in the Bible, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, King James Judge not, lest you be judged. They're not going to put up with what we're preaching until we start living out our faith. Peter concludes this first section with a purpose clause. I want your behavior to be excellent so that, 
in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So here we have, in verse 12, first century Christians who are being slandered maliciously. Now ask yourself the question, why are they being slandered? Why are people saying things about them that aren't necessarily true? Well, we have to go back to first century Rome. What was going on? There were all kinds of idols and gods and goddesses that the Romans worshipped. They believed in a pantheon of gods. And when Christians were not willing to worship their gods, they had all kinds of issues. And they said, you were anti-culture, anti-society. You were a problem. Because Christians said, Jesus Christ is the only way to God. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. But then there was also Roman idolatry and immorality, where the two were brought together, where a part of worship was being immoral, committing every sexual vice imaginable. And Christians said, no, we're going to abstain from that. And they're living in first century Rome. Talk about challenging. So they were ridiculed, they were maligned and slandered for their stance on purity. But it gets worse if you can imagine that. They were called cannibals because they ate the body of Christ and drank Christ's blood, what we call the Lord's Supper. That's how it was communicated. What should have been a symbol, the world was taking as a reality. They also said, you're guilty of incest and pedophilia because brothers and sisters in Christ came together at what's called love feasts, agape feasts, and they loved their brothers and sisters, both young and old. Can you imagine if we had those types of things said about us today in a cancel culture world? That's scary. But that's what the first century was up against. Peter says, I want you to do something. Even though they're slandering you, I want them to observe your good deeds. I want them to observe your good deeds. And as they observe your good deeds, those that are slandering you, they may glorify God on the day of his visitation. In the first century, good deeds were caring for widows and orphans. It was helping people in practical and tangible ways. The forefathers of our country did that. They built hospitals. They built schools. They built orphanages. They did all kinds of things. And we were known at one time for our good deeds, more so than any other entity in our culture. But not today, at least not anymore. What would happen if in the midst of perhaps the most challenging time in our lifetime, we started trying to focus in on good deeds? What if we visited a widow or a shut-in this week? What if we considered becoming a foster parent or adopting a child? If that's too much, what if you just said, I want to tutor another child 
Or if you're a student, I want to tutor a peer of mine. What if when you discovered your next door neighbor has COVID, you said, can I do anything to help you? Could I walk your dog? Could I bring you a meal? How could I practically serve you? What if you said, I'm going to start donating meals to Jubilee Reach. I'm going to go try and feed the homeless at Union Gospel Mission, especially with Thanksgiving approaching. What if the world began to see the church of Jesus Christ as those that would actually fulfill good deeds? I think the implication of this text is there would be some who would trust in Jesus Christ. And at the day of his visitation, they would be a part of the family of God. Now, how do I get there? In 1 Peter, Peter regularly alludes to Jesus and to Jesus' teaching. I think he's alluding to Matthew 5, verse 16. Let your light shine before people so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So we've got good deeds and glorify, the two key concepts in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. But let's go further. Look at 1 Peter 3. We can see in verse 2, Peter wants unbelieving husbands to observe, the same Greek word, to observe the conduct same word that Peter is using elsewhere throughout his letter and in this context, that when the unbelieving husbands observe the impressive and godly conduct of the wives, and notice what it is, chaste and respectful behavior, the husbands will be one, listen to this phrase, one without a word. Logic is important. In some cases, lifestyle speaks volumes. We tend to want to use words, and the world is saying, show me some action. I want to see some deeds. I want to see some works. I want you to back up your talk. If Jesus Christ really has changed your life, show me. Peter is clear. We need to live exemplary lives. That's his first concise command. It's the thesis of the letter. It sets us up for everything that is about to come. Now he gives us a second concise command in verses 13 through 17. Submit to authority. Now, if you would like to walk out, this would be the time. <laughs> Submit to authority. Now, I got to tell you, I know I look incredibly young, but... I, I have been in ministry for decades now, and I have heard something over the course of years in multiple churches, and it goes something like this. I wish more pastors would preach on politics, and it's spoken in that tone as well. Now, it takes everything within my human power not to break into a smile, I, or I'm afraid to laugh. So I have to bite my tongue, I have to bite my gums, I have to do everything I can to not show any emotion. Because when people tell me that, what they're telling me is they've never carefully studied what the Bible has to say about politics. Because if they did, they would not want to hear it. Especially now. And I'm talking about people 
from both polarized extremes and people in the middle. But because I'm committed to walking through books of the Bible, I can't skip things. I would love to skip this passage. But yet, I'm also thrilled to be able to teach this passage because I think God can use our response to this passage to change the course of our church, perhaps historically speaking, for decades to come. That's how important these words are. So let's hear what Peter has to say in verses 13 and 14. First, he gives the command, submit. Be subject. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every institution, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him. Now we'll stop right there. The term submit has fallen on hard times. I call it the Christian S word. It's like an expletive. I mean, it's a cuss word. And it's anti-American. It's un-American. i got to fight for my freedoms. I've got to maintain my rights. I have certain preferences, don't you know? Don't tell me to submit. And yet the Bible is saying... Submit, and it's commanding us. And it even says, I want you to submit yourselves. Don't make the king do it. Don't make other people try to do it for you. The mood and the tense is saying, you submit yourself. I must submit myself. Now, what's interesting here is we do it, why? Not for the president, not for the governor, not for the mayor, we do it for the Lord's sake. You might want to highlight that right in verse 13. If I want to honor the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father, I must submit. And what you're going to find interesting is in the next few weeks, the word submit is going to come up again and again, and it's going to be a command. And it's going to involve relationships that you have where you and I are not going to want to submit. We're going to dig in our heels and we're going to fight against what God's Word is teaching unless the Lord is able to speak to our hearts and we welcome the Word. So we submit for the Lord's sake. And notice, to every human institution. I wish this was not in the Greek text. I mean, I tried to find a way out of this one. I'm being facetious. Some of you think I'm serious. Every is in the text. No one can get around it. That means we're called to submit to every governing authority. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Keith, Peter had no idea how hard things are for us in 21st century America. If he did, he would not have commanded such a response. I've heard this once again for decades. Things are so bad in America. America is going to hell in a handbasket. We're swirling the toilet bowl. If Christ doesn't come in our lifetime, if Christ doesn't come today, something is deadly wrong. Again, it's very hard for me not to break out into a huge grin because what that demonstrates is we do not understand church history or world history. Peter is writing while Emperor Nero is at the apex of his reign. By the age of 18, he tried to have his mother murdered three times. He struck out 
So he got someone else to do it. And then he had many relatives killed. He was bisexual. He was guilty of every type of immorality. He believed he was God. Divine. He took Christians in the midst of the persecution, dipped them in tar, and burned them alive. He used them as lanterns to light up his palatial estate. He crucified people. He lacerated people. He did anything and everything he possibly could to wipe out Christianity. Church tradition tells us that he had the Apostle Paul killed along with the Apostle Peter. And Peter was apparently crucified upside down. This is who Peter is saying to submit to. And these things are going to happen approximately a year, perhaps two years, after the time of his writing. And he's saying submit. Now, I know you think you have it hard. And I think I have it hard right now in 21st century America. I'm telling you from a historical and global perspective, this is child's play. And I personally believe it is an offense to the historical church and the global church today to say otherwise. We of all people have been blessed. But because we've been blessed, we've become soft, prosperous, and comfortable. And we're fighting for certain rights that we probably need to reconsider carefully. Because you know what happens when you contest everything? You're no longer heard. The world thinks we're against everyone and everything. They think we're bigots. They think we're hardliners. They think we're racist. They think all kinds of things. And if we continue this behavior, we will be completely muted from our culture. That's just the truth. You may not like it. I may not like it. It's the truth. So what are we going to do about it? Submit to every human institution, whether a king or a governor. Every governing leader and authority. If you look at verse 14, there's a reason given. Governors have been sent. Kings have been sent. In this case, many would say that kings are sending the governors. There's truth in that. But the one who ordains all, God the Father, is the one who sends the governors via the king's decree. And that's true of every person in government. They are there by divine design. Now, I might want to blame it on our vote. I might want to blame it on where our country is headed or where the world is headed. But the reality is, Scripture teaches every king has been placed in authority by God's sovereignty for a purpose. So what do we do with this text? First of all, hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying there's never a time to disobey government. When I dealt with Romans 13 verses 1 through 7 a year ago, I laid out seven times that Scripture teaches we can disobey government. If you want to know more, you can go back to that sermon and listen to it. We can disobey. 
but we can do so in a gentle and gracious way. And when we do disobey, it's for significant reasons. Take Acts 4 and 5 as examples. Peter is involved. They're saying he can't proclaim Jesus Christ. Them are fighting words. Crossroads Bible Church is not going to obey that command. If we do, we no longer are a church. But when it comes to other issues, like masks, we may say we're going to obey. And we do. Why? So that we can continue to effectively proclaim Christ. Many will cite Daniel when I start talking about submission. Well, if you recall, we preached Daniel more recently than Romans. Daniel does disobey government on two occasions. Daniel chapter 3, Daniel chapter 6, for significant reasons. There's disobedience that government is asking believers to commit. But you know what Daniel did? He was abducted and taken to Babylon where he served pagan kings, many of them, for over 70 years, and he submitted. He showed a gentle and quiet spirit. He called them by their titles. He honored them. And you know what happened? You may remember, Nebuchadnezzar and Darius, two kings that Daniel served, came to faith. It was because of Daniel's submission and how he honored them but he also knew when to stand. We need to be very careful as a church what we choose to take our stand on because we're representing Christ and we're representing the gospel. Now we find the purpose of government in verse 14b. You can see the latter phrase, for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Oh, I know what you're thinking. I'm thinking the same thing. Our government is struggling to do that. And that's the biblical purpose of government. I know. Talk to the believers in North Korea, in China, in India, in Saudi Arabia. Talk to them. You want to talk about hardship and trial. But this is God's ideal. It's not always the real deal. It's his, it's, it's his ideal. And governors and mayors and presidents and every person involved in government should praise good works and should punish sinful works. But that's not often how things work. But that's the intent of Scripture. Notice in verse 15, Peter explains further how we can go about submitting and what submission does. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. So Peter says, submission is, watch this, the will of God. So when our unsubmissive spirits are rising up within us, remember, submission to governing authorities is the will of God. What's the purpose in submission? to literally muzzle those that are slandering us, persecuting us, making our lives difficult. That's been the case historically. That's the case globally today. Look again at verse 15. The goal is that ignorant 
and foolish people will be silenced. They will be muzzled. We need to be careful we understand something very important here. We've been guilty of calling certain politicians and perhaps unbelievers that don't fit our political party ignorant and foolish. And those are probably the best terms that some of us have used. How are these, how are these words used in the New Testament? There's, they're used of those who are spiritually lacking discernment and religiously ignorant. In other words, it's speaking of unbelievers. The Word of God is not their holy book. They don't have a Christian worldview. They haven't believed in Christ, so they're not regenerated. They don't have the ability to adopt a Christian worldview, no, nor would they want to in light of what they're seeing in many of us. The gospel of Jesus Christ has to transform all unbelievers, including you and me. It is not that we're smarter or more sincere than anyone who disagrees with our political, ethical, or moral perspective. It's that the gospel of Jesus Christ has transformed our worldview. It's caused us to see things in a way that we never would have otherwise. Now, I know even the problem with what I just said. When pre-Christians hear that, they think, you dogmatic, defiant, proud person. Because you just said Christianity is the only way to adopt the right way of living. And that is what we believe. If that is the case, you and I need to pray that we have compassion and sensitivity to those who have not experienced the goodness and the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. We should not be arrogant. We should not be angry. We should not be filled with hate. We need to be filled with love and grace for those that are just doing what comes natural to them. We were once there. And sadly, sometimes we function like that even though we have a relationship with Christ. In verse 16, Peter ties back once again to verse 13. He says, act or live as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Peter says, no matter how persecuted you are, wherever you live in the world, no matter what time in world history you're living, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you're free. You're a free woman. You're a free man. Because you will not have to pay the eternal penalty for your sin. You've been given mercy and grace. You've been given a relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. The Holy Spirit lives in you. You're free. You're free to be a bondslave of God. See, Bob Dylan knew what was up. you got to serve somebody. It may be the devil. It may be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. We are all someone's slave. Everyone is a slave to something or someone. Career, money, prosperity, children, you name it. Or you can be a slave of Christ, a bond slave of God. 
When you're a bond slave of God, don't use your freedom as a covering for evil by saying, well, I can do what I want. I can say what I want. The government is not going to stop me. They're not going to infringe upon my unalienable rights, my pursuit of happiness. No. Ask yourself, are you using your citizenship in heaven and your citizenship on earth in a way that in any way contradicts the gospel? Peter concludes with four pithy commands in verse 17. He says, honor all people, love the brethren or the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Now, these are tricky because you've got four commands. The first two deal with honor. To honor someone means to hold them as valuable or precious. And then you have love believers and fear God. As important as honor is, love and fear, that which is in the midst of this literary sandwich, those are the most important. But let's take these in order. Verse 17, honor all people. Every human being is made in the image of God and has value, dignity, and worth. Every person God has ever created has a soul, an eternal soul. God has a purpose for each and every person's life. When we choose not to honor people who disagree with us, politically, morally, ethically, we are not fulfilling this command. We ought to be gracious. We ought to be merciful. We ought to be compassionate. We ought to be loving. We ought to listen twice as much as we speak. We honor all people. Second, we love the brotherhood. In other words, we make much of the body of Christ. We see sisters and brothers in Christ and we prioritize them because we're going to spend eternity with them. We love one another because love is a witness to an onlooking world. As much as the world wants us to love them, they know that if we are not loving one another, we are contradicting everything that we believe. And I wonder if we took the proverbial mirror and we held it up to ourselves and asked how we are loving the brotherhood during COVID, I wonder what the mirror would tell us. Thirdly, fear God. Fear trumps submission and honor. We do not submit first and foremost to the king, the emperor, the president, or any governing authority. We first fear God. If we fear God, we won't fear anyone or anything else. Jesus is clear. Government that can kill the body. He can kill both body and soul in hell. He's the one we ought to fear. Not government. Not persecution. We ought to fear God. If we fear God, we'll keep the main thing the main thing. Lastly, honor the king. So Peter concludes where he began. Submit to governing authorities, honor the king. But there's irony here. Remember, Nero thinks he's God. And what Peter does, I guarantee you, he did with a smile on his face. He said, Nero, I know you think you're God. But what I'm saying is, you're just a mere man. You deserve honor, yes, because you're made in the image of God with value, dignity, and worth. But 
You're just a man. You're not God. We need to honor governing authorities. We honor them by appreciating them when they do something well. By speaking well of them, not by denigrating them and slandering them. That's not going to accomplish anything. The only thing that does is it helps us feel better about ourselves. Man, I went on a rant right there, didn't I? I put that person in his or her place. That doesn't do diddly. That just embarrasses us and the cause of Christ. The greatest way that you can honor the governing authorities is by praying for them. I dare you to ask the question, have I prayed for the governing authorities that I don't appreciate as much as I've prayed for them? It's almost impossible to be praying for a governing authority and to have hostility and hatred for that person at the same time. I challenge you, go to pray1tim2.org. Pray, one Tim, that stands for Timothy, pray1tim2.org. You'll get a daily email on how you can pray for your governing authorities with their picture, with something about their family, with specific prayer requests. In 30 to 60 seconds, you can pray for the governing authorities in your life, and you can develop a sense of compassion and sensitivity to them. The truth is, this is what God has commanded us to do, whether we like it or not, whether I like it or not, whether I agree with this or not, this is what God has said. Now, are there times to protest? Absolutely. All you have to do is look at the Old Testament prophets, look at the apostles. There's times to protest against government. There's times to disobey government. There's times to let your voice be heard. But there's also times to submit. We must pledge our ultimate allegiance to Christ. That's the bottom line. We must pledge our ultimate allegiance to Christ. Think about football teams who are unified. Do all the players play the same position? No. They have the same purpose. Think about a symphony. Do all of the musicians play the same instruments? No. In the composition, they're playing the same song. A choir. How is a choir harmonious and unified? Does everyone have the same voice? Do they sing the same parts? No. They're singing the same song. They have a unified purpose. Unity doesn't mean we're all the same politically. It doesn't mean that we're the same in terms of our personality, our flair. It means that we have the same purpose. If I look in the mirror once again and I focus on mirror Christianity, Keith, are you exuding the fruit of the Spirit? Are you loving? Are you prioritizing unity? And if I do the same for us as a church family, what would we say? The bottom line is this. The world has said, you're homophobic, you're bigots, you're saying it's your way or the highway, you're angry, you're filled with animosity and hatred. You are not showing Christ-likeness. You are not making the gospel tantalizing. 
See, the evangelical church has been falling apart for decades. But COVID has exacerbated it. Now we're regressing at a faster speed than we ever have. And you know why? Because COVID has been a mirror to show us our ugliness. What is our purpose? What is our vision? Building disciples who bring Jesus to our world. We are committed to being on mission and to having the same purpose. That means we unify. That means we have love for one another. Even when we disagree, we do it agreeably. We do it graciously. We exercise self-control and patience with one another. And we recognize that we need to pledge our ultimate allegiance to Christ. Our story is not over. COVID may seem like a tragedy, but it's an opportunity for us. We can be the church like we've never been before, but it means we have to unify and be on purpose. And we have to be about building disciples who bring Jesus to our world. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this afternoon and we acknowledge, Lord, that we have sinned as individuals and as a church. Lord, I acknowledge my sin my reactions to political things that I disagree with, with decisions and mandates that are sometimes difficult for me. Lord, I confess my sin. I confess our sin. I come before you and I confess the sin of the church of America. Forgive us, Father. We've been distracted. We've been divided. Help us to keep the main thing the main thing and get on purpose. Help us to fulfill the vision that you've called us to. Help us to make up for lost time. Lord, I lift up right now 17 missionaries, including children, who were kidnapped last night by a Haitian gang. What were they doing? Working at orphanages. They were performing good deeds. And they've been kidnapped Lord, forgive us for quibbling about things that we should not be arguing about when there are people who are serious about the vision and the mission of Jesus Christ. Help us to pray for them. Help us to take our eyes off of ourselves and put them on the brotherhood. Help us to love your mission and your vision more than anything else in our lives. Lord, we pray for those who have never trusted in Christ. We pray that they would do so today, that they would acknowledge their sin and that they would turn to the Savior and trust in Jesus. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the gospel. It's what brings us together. And we pray that it would keep us together for our sake and for your glory. Amen.